1: Go to trustarkcom slash Nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. This week, we turn our attention to the Middle East. The Dubai International Financial Center is the leading global financial center in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. And already since 2004, the DIFC has had data protection rules in place which in 2020 were replaced by a modernized data protection law, which even includes rules on international data transfer, standard contractual clauses, and the like. Supervision is in the hands of a data protection commissioner. And while Kay is on the road this week, my guest is Laurie Baker, the Vice President Legal and Director of Data Protection at the DIFC. Laurie is a seasoned data protection professional with previous experience in the US, the UK, France, and, of course, the Middle East. Including working for Field Fisher, Dunham, Bradstreet, and various telecommunications companies. My name is Paul Breitbart, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Laurie, so good to see you. It's it's been a long time since we were able to catch up, uh, especially in person. Indeed, we briefly met not too long ago, but didn't have time to, to really get to speak. And now we get to do it for the podcast. So I'm so happy that you're here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul, for the invitation. I'm really excited to chat with you about all the stuff that's going on here. There's there's a lot happening.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And this is not a region we talk about a, talk about a lot. So I'm excited to to learn more. Uh, but before we start, this podcast always has the unexpected question. And even though it, Kay is not here to ask what that question uh, could be, uh, I'm going to ask you one. And I'm just curious to know what book is on your nightstand. Oh, dear. Do You actually have you know, time to read.
2: <laughs> I don't have a lot of time to read, but I like to ostentatiously place books on my nightstand that I hope to read someday. One of them is actually by a really good friend of mine who I went to university with, and she authored two books now. So I think those are definitely on my nightstand. Uh, I guess, can I get a little plug for the Absolutely. name? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, so she wrote two books. One is called The Fire by Night, and the other is called What We May Become. And they're historic sort of World War II um, fiction, but really interesting. So highly recommend.
1: Very good. Well, on my nightstand, you'll find an e-reader right now uh, to make it easier also while traveling a lot. Uh, But the book I'm currently reading is Second Sleep by Robert Harris. Also fiction for change. I usually read a lot of nonfiction. And Robert Harris usually writes history novels, but now he has written a history novel that is somewhere in the remote future. Uh, so it seems like you're back in the Middle Ages, but then Middle Ages, a thousand years from now, when the world has collapsed and is trying to rebuild again. And they're trying to look back at what people in our day and age were doing.
2: Okay.
1: So it's it's fascinating for a fiction novel and science fiction at the same time a history novel. So it's, uh, it's very special.
2: Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting.
1: It's a good distraction from uh, the dystopic world that we're sometimes living in today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Funny enough, yeah, this is dystopic, right?
1: (laughs) To some extent, yes, it
2: is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the future medieval, maybe not so much, but yeah, interesting.
1: Absolutely. So tell me, how did you end up in Dubai?
2: Wow, yeah, it was kind of by happenstance. I mean, my husband's job actually uh, brought us here. We had talked about it before. He works for a company back in the UK and uh, managed to get a role taking care of his clientele over here. First time in my life I ever basically just quit and left a job. And that was when I was working for Field Fisher and and they were actually really brilliant about it uh, because I was only with them for about six months. And uh, yeah, I moved over and uh, within about a week I had a temporary role and then I had a permanent role working for a company based out of Afghanistan, actually, but had their legal and finance functions here in Dubai. And a year after that, I started working for the commissioner's office in DIOC.
1: Must be really exciting to join the regular, regulatory community that way.
2: It was. It was really interesting. And, you know, having done the role of a DPO, sort of data protection council, and what have you, for many, many years before that in the UK... I really actually love being on the regulatory side of the fence. It's quite interesting. There's a lot of that I remember, I guess, from a past life. It's been about five years now, but, uh, you know, it's, it's why we design everything the way we do uh, to make it easier, to make it more sort of plain language direct for uh, the smaller to medium enterprises in the jurisdiction to be able to follow along you know, it's not to say that other regulators are convoluted or what have you, but we have a lot of new joiners, new starters in terms of the businesses here, and we need them to get up to speed pretty quickly. So it needs to be very, very direct and very hands-on as well. So we do spend a lot of time actually getting to speak with our constituents too.
1: So why does Dubai have specific legislation and supervision for the financial industry, for the financial sector, and not a an omnibus data protection law like you would see in Europe and is being discussed in the U.S. and
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, in about 2004, when the DIFC was founded, the federal government passed a law saying that there could be financial free zones, basically, that were carved out of the federal sort of legislative framework, allowing, for example, 100% ownership, foreign ownership, rather than having a sort of 50-50 split. In the jurisdiction, the way that it had previously been. And then also it expanded effectively into a more than just financial services sort of thing over time. It became a jurisdiction where you could establish any kind of business, non financial services, including things like retail companies, including things like holding companies, financial structuring and what. So it's been. A pretty interesting journey watching over the past almost 20 years that the, the DFC develop, And the other key feature of it as part of the carve out was that it was common law uh, in the jurisdiction. So it almost is like an experiment that has luckily gone quite well for everyone in terms of building a community that at the inception had a really fundamental sort of data protection law that followed European standards, followed the international prevailing standard. Um, when the first year when the first data protection law in DiFC was established, it was only about six years after the UK Data Protection Act, for example, that implemented the directive in 1995 directive. So they were very, very early in yeah. getting up and running, and it's it's kind of taken on a life of its own. It's it's really been quite a success, and I think that was just again to give the opportunity to permit common law jurisdiction. And laws and regulations in an otherwise Sharia compliant sort of mainland jurisdiction.
1: So how is the, the perception of data protection law? I mean, I can, I can understand that international financial institutions are pretty well, pretty well acquainted with it. They, they, of course, they also have to deal with GDPR and, and other data protection laws. But I can imagine that there is also quite a lot of local financial institutions mm. that may not be as versed in. International data protection laws as some others are.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's been well received generally. It's actually given them some protection uh, as well in terms of finance and banking laws and regulations from what we say the mainland or onshore uh, in terms of sharing personal data for government access purposes, in terms of, you know, providing more of a structure, more of a framework when it comes to the kind of other side of the coin outside of the jurisdiction so the dfc data protection law in the current form has extraterritorial reach uh, meaning that um we've took some of the standards around extraterritorial reach under the gdpr and applied it in a very limited way so any company any other bank on the mainland side you know a branch outside or even the headquarters say for example there headquartered out of Abu Dhabi mm-hmm. or just Dubai or what have you, if they're regulated by the central bank, our DFSA, the Dubai Financial Services Authority, uh, who's also subject to the data protection law, needs to implement it with respect to their uh, the companies that they've authorized. it's It applies to that relationship as well. It applies to the context of processing as well. So it's been well-received. It also has been, on the other side of the coin, really misunderstood sometimes because they kind of think, well, we've got the GDPR, we've got this DIC data protection law. We didn't know that there were these requirements to have transfer clauses in place, for example, like under the GDPR. We were just about free and clear of that by being solely operating here in the Middle East. But now that we've got the DIC law, we have to deal with that as well. So there's there's been some adjusting, but the good thing too that we get to say is look, you know if this brings you up to international standards if you want business from outside of the Middle East, this will help you legitimize that
1: oh absolutely and, and that that part i I certainly appreciate uh, so when we look at the the, the AFC legislation, uh, I guess it's it, it's to a large extent comparable to what we know in terms of. The principles of, of data protection law, um, as also recognized already in 2009 by the, the International Conference. But are there any specificities also for the Arab world, for, for Dubai specifically, where you really, well, basically have something special?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. We took a look at the GDPR when it was published in 2016 and when it became enforceable in 2018. And we thought, what do we want to do with our law? It had been only updated in 2007 from the 2004 law. And, uh, we thought, okay, we need to align. We need to do something, but we don't want to just copy-paste the GDPR. That didn't really make sense. So we looked at seeding some pieces of the law that tackled things for our innovation hub, for example, at the time it was called the FinTech Hive, that would allow for data subjects' rights when using technology that couldn't really permit data Mm -hmm. subjects rights. For example, the um, impossibility around erasing data if you were using certain types of advanced technology. So we created a notice uh, requirement for that. We took a few bits and pieces that we really liked from California. So the discrimination clause and a couple of other pieces from that law. We looked around in Asia as well. And as I said, we created a few more elements that were our very own to address local issues as well. Uh, If you'll notice, for example, special category data mentions communal origin. That's one of our pieces around sort of the Arab and Bedouin kind of origins and what have you in in the local region. The biggest piece that we really focused on as well, again, was government data sharing. Uh, I mentioned that briefly before around sharing data with uh, for example, banking authorities or any other federal authority or local emirate authority. Uh, you know, we created Article 28 in order to kind of tailor that a little bit for companies to help them understand that, you know, while a government authority may be entitled to data that they requested, it will help hone and scope out the types of data that they may actually receive, help them be more specific, um, get them used to the idea that they maybe want to uh, couch searching requests in a more specific way, and maybe even include that in their law. So, in the um, e data protection law that was enacted, for now, government data is not uh, covered. But we're hoping that something along the lines of what we've done with respect to government data sharing comes through uh, in the implementing regulations around that as well. Because again, you know, while I think the jurisdiction is quite safe when it comes to government access and requests. And once you've shared data, they're usually very good about keeping it confidential, keeping it safe, keeping it secure. Uh, they're very, very sort of stable that way. More, th- more so than I think people outside the region might expect. But at the same time, we wanted to give our companies the opportunity to be able to say, look, we, we've done a little bit more due diligence on this. And, and before we share data for, uh, Public authority sort of request or law enforcement request. Let's do some real examination here and maybe do an additional impact assessment, get written assurances if possible, that sort of thing. So that something was something that we think is relatively unique to our law versus any of the others that we've seen.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And when you, when you talk about government access, uh, typically my reference point would be for law enforcement, for the security services. But I hear you say it's much more for banking supervision and, and things like that.
2: It's for, it's for both. I okay. mean, it could be for law enforcement. It could be for sort of, you know, Dubai police, for example, need something with respect to an incident that happens in the DIFC. Uh, yes, of course, we're not going to tell the Dubai police that they can't have that data or a company's not going to say that to them. And that's something that, you know, really needs to be reiterated as well. It's simply providing the sort of safeguards, more safeguards around actual sharing data with government authorities. Because in the region, until recently, there haven't been a whole lot of other laws on the other side or protocols to say what we'll do with it. It, It's mainly around trust, which as I say, you know, there is a lot of trust to be had. Mm -hmm. the, The government authorities have no reason to sort of misuse the data. But from our perspective, it helps us to be able to provide a bit more diligence and credibility I think around the sharing when it comes to international scrutiny.
1: I must say I'm not very much at home in the uh, the legislation in general in the Middle East and certainly not in in Sharia law. Is data protection a topic that would even be addressed in Sharia law?
2: Yeah, interestingly, it is. Um it's something maybe it's not specifically called that, but just to give you an example of something that came up during the pandemic. So That was 2020, as we all recall. The UAE data protection law and the Saudi data protection law, neither of them came out until 2021. However, the UAE authorities during the pandemic made it very, very clear that if you collected and misused personal data, because obviously there was so much personal data being collected at restaurants, being collected in order to get, you know, sort of permission to go out or Mm -hmm. be able to have your little walk around and stuff like that. And it was all online. It was all processed. They made it very clear in their protocols that there would be fines and investigations and whatnot if if that data was misused, if it was collected inappropriately, it was shared inappropriately. So there were privacy elements to that. And that actually came as well probably from the health data law that existed uh, prior to the pandemic anyway. So that was one of the main data protection laws sectoral, not national, but did exist on the sort of mainland side of things prior to the pandemic. Uh, So yeah, they—it it is a concept definitely here. And uh, it's now becoming something that is going to be implemented when the UAE regulations come out. That will be implemented after that, the 2021 law. And Saudi Arabia actually has a law that will be implemented probably by September this year, Mm -hmm. hopefully, if the regulations, uh, you know, permit and if there are no other extensions when it comes to grace periods and so on. So
1: things are actually moving now in the Gulf.
2: Yeah, absolutely. uh... Yeah, it's it's really all happening. And uh, it's a really exciting place to be right now for privacy, actually. It feels a bit like Europe or the UK 10, 15 years ago when I first sort of got there in 2007, I guess it was, two thousand six. Um, You know, everybody was kind of looking around a few years after the uh, directive came out, kind of going, what do we do with this?
0: (laughs) Should we do something? uh,
2: Should we do something with this? And, you know, if if what, you know, what what's it going to be? Um, Now we're in a similar position, but the great part about it is, is that we've got hindsight. And there's a lot of experts that are living and working in the region that were there in Europe at the time as well. And kind of went, uh, you know, kind of take what we learned and, and make it better.
1: It's impressive and um, yeah I've I've seen the Saudi law coming coming past. I have not had the time to uh, to look at it in detail yet, but I'm I'm sure given also the size of the country and the weight it has in the region uh, that it will also bring a serious impact to other jurisdictions that may not yet have data protection laws on the books.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of places around the region do have data protection laws in place, but whether they have A regulator that is up and running or if they need to make amendments or adjustments, you know, you see it kind of everywhere now, all the way into Central Asia. It's just a matter of kind of honing it over the next couple of years to a place where there's some maturity around the regulation and supervision side of things. But there, yeah, if you, if you go to almost any country in the region, there's going to be a data protection law. Qatar has one. Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, all the way over to the Levant. I mean, it's just bringing up everywhere. Morocco's had a data protection law for many, many years. If you want to head yep. as far that direction, so yeah,
1: that's that's great to see. And I see that the IFC is also a member of the international conference. So also yeah. there, you you play your part.
2: We do, yeah. We've been really active since we got our membership. I think it was 2019 we got membership, full membership. We were an observer from about 2018 and then one year later became full members. We participated in the COVID-19 task force. We participated in the policies and standards working group. Yeah, and it's been a great experience I and mean, we've learned so much from just the interaction with global regulators and we've been able to build a lot of really good relationships as well.
1: And of course, this year, the other financial center will host the, the conference in Bermuda. Uh, yeah, so that might yeah. also be part of the discussions that will be on the agenda there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So Alex and his team are doing a great job getting ready. It seems like it's uh, just we just came back from Turkey and here we are only a few months away from Bermuda. Yeah. So will you be there, Paul?
1: I'm going to try to be there. Yes. Uh, also, because I'm now also with the Jersey Data Protection Authority, of course. So right. for the first time since 2015, I would also be able to join the closed session again, which is, of course, yeah. something that I, uh, that I always really enjoyed while I was with the Dutch DPA and, and running the secretariat of the conference. It'll be great. So one of the things when I, when I looked at your, uh, your legislation and the whole setup, uh, of the data protection law and the DIFC uh, is a thing called EDMRI, the Ethical yeah. Data Management Risk Index. Um, another thing that I feel is is quite unique. Uh, it feels a bit like transfer risk assessments, but also not. Can you talk a bit about what it is, how it works, why you have Absolutely. it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it, the EDMRI. We've got to think of a better name. You know, maybe that could be <laughs> one of the one of the outcomes of this is we can have a contest for a better name. But uh, Ethical Data Management Risk Index. Something that. After Shrem's two, a few of us around the D.I.C. consultancies, law firms, myself, what have you, were kind of going, "All right, so on paper, though, doesn't everybody seem to be like trying to do something about complying with the laws?" And we keep missing the mark. Who's, you know, really out there that actually is doing it right? <laughs> and it seems like the conclusion is very few, based on what we keep seeing from the. Legislation, sorry, the litigation in Europe. So what can we do to help get it right was the question. You know, what can we do to aid that? And so this was going back to probably, yeah, about September 2020, we came up with a list of about 30 or 40 criteria that we thought, you know, just how do we figure out what's going to happen in the jurisdiction when an importer receives personal data. So not just kind of adequacy in the sense of our laws are the same, it looks an awful lot the same, we regulate the same, you know, the kind of other regulations that exist like cybersecurity and so on are all there. This is really what will happen when
1: the data arrives on the ground.
2: Exactly. We looked at all of that as factors that contribute then to once it does end up with that importer, how likely are they to comply? I don't know if that's predictable. I don't know if we quite got it right. You know, we have published it as Mm -hmm. guidance. We haven't made it something that if you don't use the EDMRI, you're going to be breaching the DIFC data protection law. But we've taken a chance on this sort of risk assessment for entities. Anybody can use it, really. It's You know, we put it from our point of view for our our entities, but anybody can use it. Just to say, you know, if you send data to this jurisdiction, you might be taking a big risk or... No, it's not going to be that risky at all. It seems like it'll be pretty safe in these hands. And we've also included looking at uh, jurisdictions even within Europe. We've looked at jurisdictions like the UK, um, in the United States, and kind of said, you know, even with adequacy, you might be still taking a risk. Yeah. You might not be completely free of uh, risk and, and making sure that your importers are complying with data protection laws there. So take a double look. And if you think that you're going to be sending something based on our analysis to a company that might put your data at risk, then do what we call the EDMRI+. Plus. So it's a due diligence tool that we also developed as a companion to the EDMRI to say, okay, you've gone to the medium to high risk and high risk jurisdictions. Just at least conduct this. We think you should conduct this assessment, which is comprised of, I think, about 17 questions that says, you know, what have you done with the data? How do you process it? Do you have the appropriate policies in place? Why are you thinking about sending data to this place? And the other half of the question are, okay, then tell us what you know about that importer, specifically about that importer. So the idea being, you know, adequacy, fine, but it doesn't mean that because laws are in place, everybody complies. Mm-hmm. Take a look at that importer. And and if you can answer these questions uh, such that you feel comfortable sending the data to that importer, fine. But our guidance basically says if you answer no or I don't know to a lot of these questions, you probably want to go back and get those answers updated so that you do know and that you can say yes to a lot more of them. And if you can't, because the importers unwilling to share that information or they just simply don't have the structures or frameworks in place that help those answers turn from no to yes, you may want to rethink about it again. Just as the regulator, all we can do is give guidance, but that's our view of the world rather than sort of making you do the assessment on your own, let's say, and still maybe get it wrong going back to the original sort of premise.
1: So these are self-assessments. They don't need to be submitted to you for approval or review or whatsoever.
2: No, no. I mean, we haven't taken that step. I don't know if we ever will. I think the important part about it is that they maintain that sense of accountability But it's giving them a little bit of breadcrumbs along the trail to sort of say, you probably are taking a big risk here. And look, we understand your businesses, you have to do what you have to do, make your own decisions in the end. But, you know, if you do get reported to us because of some sort of breach, because your importer messed up, because, you know, there's been something went horribly wrong with the processing in that jurisdiction, we probably will look into that as well and start asking questions around why. Didn't you do more to figure out who you're sending data
1: to? Fascinating. Uh, And then you also have your adequacy decisions. Um, All the EU commission adequacy decisions are mirrored from what I've saw, uh, but there is also specific ones from uh, from the own region, uh, including for Colombia and Singapore and the Mm -hmm. APEX-CBPRs. Discussions with the UK ongoing on a data bridge, uh, similar Mm to basically the... And the data reach they will have with the U.S., so like the cross-border privacy framework, the, the privacy shield, things like that, uh, to facilitate the free flow of data.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah, we historically, even before our 2020 law, had recognized the European Commission ju- decisions, and we added Japan when that was decided, and South Korea on our own. Actually, we did our South Korea decision ourselves We also added a few others, as you said. So, Colombia is one of our own decisions, Singapore, and then the CBPRs, which was, as you said, the apex CBPRs at the time. Now we're participating heavily in the global CBPR forum. We hope to have membership someday in that. Uh, So, that's something that we've been really keen on participating in and have gone to some of the previous workshops and meetings on that. Uh, With respect to the UK Data Bridge, yes, we were... Fortunate enough to be chosen as one of the six jurisdictions that they would start with in terms of data bridges. It's obviously been, you know, something that we've all worked through together because it came post Brexit. It came as part of a lot of change and you know, innovation in the UK data protection laws as well, as well as during a time of our own change and, and upgrading of our laws and stuff. So it's been a really interesting journey. We've worked well with the team. They're really, really bright people in the DCMS now DCIT team that are working with us. So yeah, we're hoping that soon, once we kind of straighten out a few things with respect to Article 28, that we will have our data bridge in place as well. So we've made really good progress, and and it's coming along quite well.
1: Cool. And what about European adequacy? Is that also on the roadmap somewhere?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. We had a good conversation over the years with the European Commission. We- Brexit and South Korea, Japan, the other decisions that they've been working on, plus reviewing all of the other decisions that they initially have issued over the years. Uh, we're, we're not exactly on the priority list at the moment, um, but it's something that we would love to resume the conversation about if possible. So it's something we would definitely want to discuss, but we'll, we'll leave it to them at this point to make the next move.
1: Nice. Um, maybe before we, we wrap up a little bit more about the, about the authority, because mm-hmm. listeners, I think would also be interested to know. So what are the risks if I go with my data to Dubai? What is the, the level of supervision? What are the mm-hmm. fines? Are there any fines? What, what enforcement is taking place? Can you, can you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah. We function like any other regulator that you might imagine. We issue fines. We do inspections. We do investigations when there are complaints issued to us. We don't have a lot of sort of fines that we've issued without them being basic administrative stuff like, uh, you know, failure to renew your notification or failure to notify appropriately in the first place or to have your compliance program in place or what have you, things that we find on inspections and stuff. What we've issued fines for uh, last year, and you can see this on our supervision and enforcement page, we're basically around complaint where people have come to us and said, hey, we think that this company mishandled our personal data. I didn't give it to them for marketing purposes, or I think that they're sharing it inappropriately with other sort of investors and what have you, was one of the things that came up to us last year. So we investigated those and issued them, issued fines to those companies and two separate decision. We've had other complaints come to us that we've maybe been able to facilitate some help within the company. Because uh, if, for example, somebody complained against the retail side in the mainland, as they say, you know, sort of on the Dubai or, or Emir- uh, federal level, but we only deal with the commercial bank and the mm-hmm. DIFC itself, we don't have as much jurisdiction on the outside part of that, but we can speak to, if if appropriate, we can speak to the commercial side, for example, in the DIFC and say, hey, I think something's going radically wrong with your uh, with your retail uh, sort of policy framework or privacy framework. And um, you might want to look into that other than that, we can't do a whole lot after that unless there's a direct sort of a nexus with the DIFC companies. So and would only, you look too
1: forward to complain to the UAE data protection authorities?
2: So that'll be the interesting thing. I think what we are looking to do is have a kind of relationship with them as well so that if there is something to discuss with respect to something that's in their jurisdiction, we should be able to do so. So we've raised this to the powers that be on the federal level and suggested a kind of authority that would make a joint decision-making sort of process.
1: Very interesting. And that could even lead in the future, who knows, to joint investigations cross border.
2: It would be really interesting to see that happen. I think, you know, it only makes sense really because it would be silly to sort of live in our little individual silos here. We have to start collaborating more. We don't want to see Fragmentation. We don't want to see confusion. We just want to try and help each other get this right. So companies really ultimately can just be accountable and and transparent about their processing without the fear of you know reprisal or or any kind of failure on their part. You know, don't make it difficult for them. Just try to help. Mm -hmm. That's what we're aiming to do.
1: Very good. Are there any any misconceptions, any uh, misunderstandings that you still would like to solve now that you have the floor? <laughs> about the the DIFC data protection laws.
2: Yeah, you know we we get questions all the time. We're not Dubai. We're a specific jurisdiction. We worked with the authorities in the region. Obviously, we we work with Smart Dubai, for example, is a government data collection kind of centralized system to make things a little bit easier with respect to getting all of the things that you need as an expert to. To live here and not even just as an expat, anybody in Dubai, uh, it kind of helps collect all of that information and disseminate it to other government agencies so that you don't have to keep presenting the same document over and over and over or so that you can make payments to the government more easily or so that you can do whatever it is you need to do in the Emirate more easily. So we do work with them and we have a good relationship with the other Emirates and federal level authorities. But we are distinctly our own jurisdiction. We have our own courts. We have our own legislation. We're not just a financial center. We do a lot of other really interesting stuff. We have really an artwork. You can ask the Israeli Data Protection Authority. <laughs> they were here in March, and that was besides our MOU that we signed. They were really keen on our artwork all around the jurisdiction. So it's an interesting place to check out. I think uh, you know there's a lot of great stuff in the Dioc, and including restaurants and it's art galleries. And, of course, financial services and and fintech type that we have in the Innovation Hub. So, yeah, I, I think I encourage everybody to come out and visit us. And if you do, just give us a shout.
1: Well, thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for enlightening us about the wonderful world of the DIFC. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have too. And on that note, we'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like the episodes, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. You'll find the podcast on Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You'll find Kay on social media as Heart of Privacy and myself as Paul B. Until next week, goodbye.
0: That was Serious Privacy.
1: Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy driven compliance software.
1: Because they're Deep Automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: TrustArts enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST-AI, OECD-AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts.